Hello, I am Patricia McLean, and this is Let's Talk About It, a conversation with survivors of domestic abuse. At first, it was me, a photojournalist, and my hairdresser, Kate, when sitting in her chair a month after my husband's very public arrest for domestic violence, she gently touched my arm and said, I've been there. And then she let me know she had always wanted to tell her story. Three years later, on Valentine's Day, 2019, we were 14 woman survivors, half from my community, with photo portraits, documents of the abuse, and audio recordings of our stories that I had pulled together for an exhibit at the Camden Public Library. Now we are 25 and counting survivors on four-foot by two-foot banners in downtown windows touring the state, and also sharing our stories in our own voices on the Finding Our Voices website. We see each other in person as much as we can, but when six of us gathered for this Zoom conversation, it had been a while because of the pandemic, and it felt good to be together even if it was on a video screen. With us today are Mary Lou, 80, who left her husband, a University of Maine professor, when she was 65, Janine, Leanne, and Megan, who all connected with me through my post on the Maine Coalition to End Domestic Violence Facebook page, seeking survivors willing to show their faces and tell their stories, and Christine, who has framed my gallery photographs for 20 years. Christine was wrapping up the survivor portraits for the launch exhibit of the project on Valentine's Day 2019 when she told me she was also a survivor. My portrait of her made it into the exhibit just in time for the opening. If there are no ears to hear, our voices don't go far. So thank you for listening. And now, let's talk about it. I'm Megan. I live in Ellsworth, Maine. Christine, I live in Lincolnville. Hi, I'm Mary Lou, I live in Scarborough, Maine. Leanne used to live in Augusta, Maine, now in Texas. I'm Janine, and I live in Casco, Maine. We all share something in common, and that's domestic violence. And statistics show that it affects one out of four women worldwide. So it's a pandemic of its own. It's predictable. That's one thing that, that we know now academically. It can escalate very, very quickly, or as in other cases, such as mine, it can take years for it to escalate to something as terrifying as the actual physical violence part of it. The one thing I think is, I mean, does it ever get better? Oh, no, it only gets worse. You live on hope, right? You're hoping that right. it yeah. Oh, it's like three weeks and that's not then, then you turn left instead of right and it's all over, it starts all over again. Yeah. One thing I say about domestic violence, whenever I talk to any women who seek me out or reach out to me to talk about it, I tell them that as bad as today is, today really is the best day of your life because tomorrow's going to be worse. How did life change uh, when you left? So the freedom that you have now, what are things that you're doing with your freedom that you couldn't do when you were in the relationship? I could paint. <laughs> I couldn't do... Um... It was like a miracle like to be able to do artwork again. Um, he had built a studio for me on the property, but he wouldn't let me use it. But when I left, it's like I could paint, and the, and the paintings that were coming out of me were happy. 
I became a whole different person. I started to like myself and I felt like, you know, I am capable. Like, cause when you hear you're stupid every day, you start to believe it and that reality becomes your truth, you know? And how about going back to school? Yes, that's been another really um, exciting thing. I had always wanted to finish school because I'd gone right out of high school just for two years. And, um, and he always said, no, you can't do that. You're not smart enough. I'm in there and I'm on the honor roll and, you know, I'm headed for my bachelor's almost and going on to my master's. So, you know, I would have never been able to do that. I can be myself when you're presented with somebody that's as needy as, as my partner was, I felt like I was constantly, you know, trying to make him happy or calm him down, constantly trying to make sure that that wouldn't bubble over. It's like a constant tension, carrying it around all day long, trying to, you know, make sure that that next shoe doesn't drop. I mean, exhausting, right? Yeah, it's, it's exhausting. And I think, I think just not having that in my life has just freed up so much energy, just energy, just being able to be with my friends and my children and not, you know, not have that sort of in the background all the time. Okay. So I'm doing this finding our voices now, like every morning I have these ideas and I really think it's because I, I was 29 years just stymied and staunched and now it's all like bursting out. Just think about what that does to you, like day after day, week after week, month after month, the time that we spend managing this individual, placating and keeping the peace. I mean, it really is a lot of our energy and time. Yeah. And I would want to say to, to women who are still trapped in those relationships, you lose so much of yourself that you even lose the part of yourself that can assess that that's wrong, that that's stealing too much away from you. You don't even have enough left over to really recognize that, which is why finding our voices is so important, encouraging women to tell their stories who've been able to make the decision to leave the relationship. Because I think a lot of women who are still in it really question what they're thinking, you know, like, oh, is it really this bad? Maybe if I just, you know, X, Y, Z, it'll be okay. But beginning to maybe hear the stories that say it's never going to be okay. You've been doing it for so long, you, you forget that you deserve so much more than this. Leanne, did you feel also that you weren't able to think because he had filled up your head with himself? I was very independent, but then after more than 10 years, I was doubting myself. Whatever went wrong, it was my fault because he, he never says sorry. I'm the one, doesn't matter. I feel like it or not. If it was my fault or not, I'm the one have to say sorry. And then after a while thinking maybe it was my fault. It really took a while for me to figure out it wasn't me. Nowadays, I'm able to open window, let the sun shining in, not like before every room, there was a two, three layers of a curtains blocking suns out. I hated it, but nowadays I have my freedom. I like big windows, I like the sunshine shining in. So it's like literally and figuratively. Yes. I have no access to money. So I can buy a car, so I can be independent. So I was trapped in the house. I got a call today from someone who said that their gardener can't come to work because he, he won't give her the car. So that seems like a, a classic thing to do, to deny the car, because that's your independence, right? Yes. Um, I have an excuse for 
and if you want to go i can take you but mm -hmm. then when you really need to go somewhere he'll always come out with some excuse that i'm busy i'm tired yep he would write out a check for like what gas station I had to go to and how much I could spend. If I did spend any more, he would keep track of my receipts and write it all down and make me pay him back. He had total control. So it's like, you can't leave the house and go somewhere. Like, even if you want to say, Hey, I want to take the kids to the park today. And he keeps control on the gas and where you go and all the stuff. You can't do that. So you feel like a prisoner in your own house. And Mary Lou, how did he control you? You had a job as a teacher. Yeah, I, and I, you know, I almost forgot that I contributed a substantial amount to the, to the income. He always had the best snowmobile, the best trailer. I would go with friends for the whole day. And, you know, we'd love going bargain shopping. And I come back with a bag with $20. And my, one of my friends saw the look on his face once. It's like, we can't afford for you to be spending money on nonsense. We don't need, you know, just anything that was on sale. But it wasn't, if it exceeded $20. I was careful too, because I didn't want to, you know, stir up anything. And you were making your own income. You were, you had a job. Oh yeah, we used to put all our money together. Right. He just always spent, 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 and and never asked. You know, got a dog. Never even took me to go see the dog. We, he came home and he bought guns, and so there was never any discussion. But with me, I had to kind of make sure I checked with him that it was okay to buy this or that. And it's just like hearing all of us. We're all bright, intelligent women. It's just what happens each time I, I sold myself to him and the fact that I do whatever he wanted to do, it would take a little piece away from me. And so at the end, I was an empty shell going around doing, you know, a life of desperation and wanting to die. But there was nothing left. And it was there, but it was so deep, I couldn't find it. Yeah, every time you're trying to placate or keep the peace, you give a little bit of yourself away. Yeah, yeah. But Janine, um, we're talking about financial abuse, and you're an expert on that. Women who are victims of actual physical violence uh, report typically 98 to 99% of them, which is virtually all cases, that they were abused financially in some way prior to the actual assault. I really felt that if we could raise awareness about financial abuse, we could help women see much, much earlier in their relationships, the things that were happening, like what Mary Lou was talking about. So what I did was I talked mm -hmm. to my state legislature several years ago, it was back in 2016, and I told her I wanna pass a law that criminalizes financial abuse. So we worked on it and um, she drafted a bill and the first time I testified before the uh, state legislature, before the Judiciary Committee, it kind of fell on deaf ears. They didn't get it. And I was really dejected. But as we were leaving the state house that day, there were some women with the main coalition to end domestic violence there at the testimony. And they said, we get it and we'll work with you. So we um, regrouped and two years later, with the help of Pat, and a few other of my sisters with Finding Our Voices, we testified again before the Judiciary Committee. And this time, we literally blew them away. In September of 2019, Janet Mills, our governor, signed the bill into law. We do have a law that makes financial abuse um, a crime, and it also puts into place some protections for survivors of financial abuse, such as halting creditors from calling you. It helps you restore your credit score. But the most important thing for me is that this bill also changes 
the legal definition of domestic violence in Maine to include financial abuse? I was 55 when I left my marriage and I had zero credit. Everything was in his name. The car I drove was leased. Part of the settlement was that he would put it in my name. The divorce was four years ago. My lawyer let me know last week that the title is in my name. It cost me, I asked my lawyer to, to figure out how much it cost me in legal fees to try to get that uh, title turned over to my, my name as the divorce settlement decreed that it needed to be. He said it would take too long to figure it out. It had to be $10,000, four years of dragging his feet. And talk about dragging his feet. Janine, I think you have a story about how they continue to abuse you after the divorce uh, in the court process. I was under the impression that if I could just divorce him, that I would be okay, that my kids would be okay, and that we wouldn't have to walk on eggshells ever again. But the divorce itself was awful. He contested everything. He even appealed our divorce to the Supreme Court of the state of Maine. If somebody does that, if they attack you legally, if you don't respond, they win by default. So what I had left in my 401k was $250,000 at the age of 50. And in the 15 years post my divorce, I spent all of that defending ridiculous lawsuits. Was there ever a judge that looked at all this and said, I see a pattern of abuse here. We're going to address this. There was, and her name is Judge Renee Goldenberg, and she was down in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, Broward County. She said he had conducted warfare on me for 10 years and that he would continue to come after me until the day he died. Now, the good news is she was a prophet. He did die. He died probably less than a year and a half after that final divorce decree where she did give me the keys to his house, quite literally. And I did quite well in that settlement, but I did even better, ladies, if you do and can get the life insurance policy, continue to make those payments because it was, it was definitely worth That's it That's good me. advice. Yeah. And, and you her, realize how bad it is when you see it I all I realized together. it's like, I wasn't crazy. Yeah. It's right there in black and white. And it did happen to me. Sometimes just to get through it, you block it out and pretend like it didn't happen. Oh, you absolutely do. At the time, I wanted alimony and not cash because I was told for 29 years that I didn't have a head for money. I was always making mistake after mistake. I was afraid to get money because I thought that I would lose it. I wouldn't be able to manage it. So I wanted alimony. But um, once I connected with Janine, I realized that you you, want to get the money. You don't want alimony because that's just another form of control. Because one time I filed for contempt of, I think, the protection from abuse order. And the day that we filed for contempt was the day that my alimony was due. And it was late for the only time it ever was because it's automatically put in every month for like 12 days. Uh, And it was absolutely a message to me. You you don't want any tie because that any tie, financial tie, is going to just be a way for him to control you. And as Janine pointed out, they can just stop paying. They'll stop paying and then they'll get these contempt charges racked up and they don't care. And then the other advice I would give any woman is if there is money in the relationship, and my husband had a lot of money, is don't sign a prenuptial agreement. What that does, the prenuptial agreement, is it creates a huge imbalance in the relationship. And he was always reminding me, if you leave me or if I leave you, you'll have nothing. I'd like to top put it out there to people about imbalances in relationships. I've noticed that with talking to women that there's the um, imbalance is bad, like education, age, money, 
Megan, can we start with you? Was there any imbalance with any of those things that I just mentioned with you and the person that you met? Yeah, their dad was 24 years older than me. And one thing right there. Yep, and that was a huge imbalance. I thought he knew everything. He was so worldly and he had his own business. So he made a lot of money um, and I wasn't allowed to be on his checking account, but he was on mine. I would get a little bit every month and he would take it all and say that I, I used his water, I used his electricity, I took showers, I needed to pay for that. So he would say, you need to pay me room and board. And so he would take that, all the money away, and then I couldn't pay my student loan. Um, and those all went into default. My credit got all screwed up. And Was, was he a cheapskate when you met him? No, um, he actually, when we first met, he bought me a brand new Mustang. He took me to Florida. When we had the kids, um, it just, it all changed. He had grabbed me and, and gotten really loud um, before the kids, but after the kids, it, 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 the physical violence increased a lot. Mary Lou, can you talk about any imbalance when you met? I was 21 when I met Charlie, and he was 28. Well, that's so he had been in the Navy. You know, graduated from college and was working as a principal. And of course, he was spending beyond his means, so just like swept me off my feet. If we could switch over now to breaking the silence. Christine, could you tell me about your breaking the silence? Well, I, I grew up in an abusive family, and my mother had uh, many abusive boyfriends and quite often lived with us. From a very early age, I, I was around my my mother being beaten by these men and my brother and sister and I also. And so I learned from a very early age that it's much more important to try to keep the peace. And at the same time, you know, that expression, I'm nothing without a man. I mean, definitely got that message growing up. Wow. So I was, yeah, I was in and out of a lot of relationships that would sort of culminate in some horror story. I guess by the time I was 50, I had my three kids, two of them are adopted. So I was in a relationship with someone who just was wonderful with kids. I mean, just wanted to teach them how to play baseball and was out in the yard with them all the time. But in, after about two years, it started to devolve into like a competition between the children and him. And, and I, I was always giving them too much of my time, and he would make me feel like that was bad for them, coddling them too much. I was always ashamed of my history with these men and these relationships, so I, I didn't talk about it. I was listening to Janine talk about the PTSD that you didn't even know you had, and I think I went through something like that too, because I started to feel just a huge amount of grief over the time that I've wasted in these relationships. And so it's been really liberating for me to work with Finding Our Voices and, and start that conversation with people. I, like you, have so many women around me that I've known for years that said they had been abused too in their lifetime by one or more male partners. And um, it's kind of extraordinary how it's all coming to the surface. I broke my silence after 11 years. I had been working with um a counselor and next step on the side at that time, just recording things and waiting for a safe time to go. When my daughter ran to me to protect me, when her father was coming at me to punch me and he ended up punching her. And that, that was the bottom line for me. My child gets hurt. I'm calling the police. I couldn't do it for myself, but I could do it for them. And that day we went down to next step in Machias and met my advocate that literally saved our lives. We have the same advocate, Missy yes. Fairfield? Yes, yes, she's and amazing. 
but you had been working with her for a while. Yeah, for about six months. And they just really wanted to make sure it was a safe time to get out. But it ended up happening that I had to call the police that night. I had talked to like, you know, counselors at the shelter, but never really talked in front of other women or other people about it until I joined your project. And it's been very freeing. It's really helped a lot. In what way, Megan? I never had a voice before. And I feel like I have a voice now. And that, that's huge to me. He would foam at the mouth and wiggle his fingers and just scream and throw things at us. It was so random. Like, I didn't know when it was coming, but, like, you constantly live in that hypervigilant mode of, like, what's coming next or what mood is he going to be in? And do you think by speaking out, has it helped you to put it all together, too? Oh, yeah. Like, you feel like you're alone and like, in what you're going through. I think I felt like there was something wrong with me and what did I do to make this happen and stuff. And you meet other women and you start realizing you're not alone and it happens all the time. When I um, wanted to commit suicide um, and I told him about it, he, he went and got a gun and told me, I'll put a gun to your head and show you to be successful committing suicide. And then you guys understand why I went out to the movies with him and, and to five o'clock mass. I mean, it's the only place I've ever felt that we understand it. Finding your voices is definitely a sisterhood of, of deep, loyal, unconditional love and friendship. When I first went to the shelter, I have no idea what's the word to put it on is what's domestic violence. I have no concept of it. And then one by one, put it together. So after that, I said, if I known earlier, I, I might have left earlier. And if I know there's a group or agency that, you know, helping people, I could have reached out earlier. So I felt like it, I need to voice out, reach out, educate more people by sharing my stories. And Leanne, you're in law school. <laughs> Can you tell us about that? Were you thinking of going to law school when you were married? No, never in my dream. What my I experienced through, you know, protection from the abuse and divorce, how horrible it was. I want to be the lawyer who understand what we go through and who can help us and educate us and be our side, literally be our side. The lawyer that I encounter, they don't understand. There are still not many lawyers really understand the message. I agree. Leanne, could you talk about, uh, was it over for you with the divorce or are you still going through battles now? This has been 10 years that I'm still going through. 10 years? Yes. Since the divorce? Yes. Oh my, what, what are you going through now? Custody. <laughs> so it, it's horrible. I said it. I need to know the law enough to fight the system. Yeah, and that's what you're doing. That's what I'm doing. <laughs> you. Christine, you said it was torture, the psychological abuse. Could you talk about that? Because a lot of women, of course, will say, uh, Willie never hit me. Because I wasn't beaten in this particular relationship that was so psychologically torturous. I thought that wasn't abuse. It was everything from gaslighting, you know, twisting my words back at me, financial, you know, just so many crazy, crazy things. At the end of it, I thought, how did I let myself 
get into that for f almost five years. And he had affairs and, and the affairs were my fault. But no, he didn't beat me. And so I thought, well, I can't tell people this. I must have done something to have this happen. You are listening to Let's Talk About It, a conversation with survivors of intimate partner abuse. With me, Patricia McLean, the founder and president of the nonprofit organization Finding Our Voices, committed to breaking the silence in Maine on the web at findingourvoices.net. Let's return now to our conversation with five of the 24 women on Finding Our Voices, four-foot by two-foot banners, touring downtown windows all across the state. Mary Lou, a retired teacher from Scarborough. Janine, a journalist from Casco. Megan, an artist from Ellsworth. Christine from Hope, who owns a framing business and Leanne, a law student from Augusta. How many people didn't know they were suffering from domestic violence, or living with domestic violence? I was complete shock after I left and my therapist told me. There's a lot of silent codes, aren't there, for like keeping you in line? Like I remember we go out to a dinner party and people must have thought that I was like nuts because I was so nervous because I would always be looking over and making sure that he was comfortable. And he was just like sitting back like a king and I was totally jittery and just because I, I knew that if he wasn't comfortable, I would hear about it afterwards. Like I'd be in a lot of trouble because he would be lashing out at me because I, I dragged him to this thing or because it made him feel uncomfortable. It's not like he hit me at the dinner party, but he kept me on such edge. He could reduce me to tears with just a look. Yes. Yeah, it was awful. It is like a form of brainwashing. It happens slowly over time. It wasn't you know, it wasn't like he was like that right from the beginning, you know, from the, in the beginning, he was Prince Charming and then just slowly wore away at my self-esteem and my confidence and, and until I didn't know whether I was coming or going. Everybody in that community, it's such a small town, had grown up with him and, you know, they didn't see what happened at home, but they would see him have outbursts at stores. He's very hot-headed and like he'd get in arguments with people really easy about politics and everything. And they just accepted it. I even feel like my neighbors helped keep me silent because they heard it. One of them even wrote me a note and wrote a note saying he knows what's going on and that it needs to stop. And that was the first time somebody had spoken up because I feel like a lot of people just look the other way. Back in the day, it's just, you know, you keep your family stuff in the family. And that was what his family was kind of pressuring on me and, you know, his mother and everything. It's like, you don't talk outside the family about what goes on. It's like a cult. When you keep it inside a culture, that's when abuse happens because no one's talking about it. Leanne, your picture is the only one in the series where you're not, the person, the subject is not looking at the viewer. Could you explain the significance of you lying down with your eyes closed in the woods? He bought an uh, access with my credit card, and he threatened me not to go anywhere next day. Don't plan anything. I know that's the day I need to leave. With all the guns and, and handguns under the pillow, I know he's tried to threaten me. But when he bought an ass, I know it was coming. Does anybody else have any experience with weapons? Oh, yeah. And my ex, there were so many incidents, too, that I should have called the police and didn't. 
Well, my son told me afterwards, my son Bill, that he was hunting with his father in northern Maine. He was hunting he, with his father, you said. Hunting with his father. And so uh, there was this dirt road, and, and his father said, I want you to go three miles down that road, and you can get back to camp that way. And three miles? That's a long way. How old, was, how old was he at the time? 12, 13. And Bill said he didn't want to do it. And he said, you know, there's such a thing as hunting accidents. He said that to his son. He said that to his son. And then Christmas night, we were at... Um, we lived on Sebago Lake, and we were six tenths of a mile on dirt road. And my uh, son Charlie was in college. My ex put a gun to his head, and so to uh, his Charlie, teeth. he put a gun to your son's head. Head, right? And so my other son kicked him in the groin, kicked his father in the groin, and and Charlie left. And I think, who am I going to call? I should have called the sheriff, but I didn't. I called um, the family doctor, who was um, since died, but he, you know, it's all part of the old boys club. He said, what I want you to do, Mary Lou, this is the doctor, I want you to go home and bring your mother and the kids back to Scarborough. And then when I, I want you to come back and be with Charlie. I mean, the fact that the doctor didn't tell me to call the sheriff. Right. And get out of there and don't ever go back. Right. To go back and, to a guy that would put his, his a gun to your son's head that you're supposed to go yeah. back to that house. And he still has the gun, by the way. Oh, yeah. He had a gun, a, a cabinet of guns. It's just the insanity of domestic violence that that's why I want to speak out because it doesn't get better, like we say. Well, it's insane in the relationship, but it's insane in society. When they're finally brought to the attention of the courts, they treat it like a first offense. Mary Lou, if you had called the police uh, after 45 years of marriage, they would have considered it a first offense because he'd never right. been arrested. Megan, did he, you said he went to jail? Yeah, he went to jail like multiple times um, for breaking the restraining order. Um, really? Yeah. Did he break the restraining order? He broke it at least five times. What? Yeah, coming. What was the most, what was the biggest sentence that he got for that? He he went for like a day or two, and then they broke it five times. Mm-hmm. The more, most he'd get was a day in jail. Yep. And then he had the money, and he'd pay his way out and stuff, and he just always has gotten out of stuff. What does that do to you to know that you can't restrain the guy? There's a restraint or he can't be restrained. It makes you feel like hopeless. Like you just feel like frozen too, because I mean, you think the law is going to protect you, but in essence, they really don't. They give you a piece of paper and a, here's good luck, you know, and it doesn't seem like there's really any help after that. There's no follow through. It's like, you're on your own and you're still scared. And it's like, what are you going to do? What I would like to do is to actually put a call out to the domestic violence agencies, to the court system, to the legal uh, industry, to um, police in the field. We've got to come up with something better than a protection for abuse order because they simply do not work. What would you say to women who have never been through domestic abuse? It's not something that you just see right off the bat. And if it's happening over time, it's, it's incredibly difficult to see your way to making a decision to leave because you've already lost so much of yourself in that relationship. It becomes survival. You're just trying to survive at that point. So I would just ask people that don't, don't have experience with it to, to try to understand that the choice is not as easy as you think to leave those relationships. People don't realize that the guy is telling you he's going to kill you if you leave, maybe, or you've seen how sadistic he is. Well, this is for my case. 
I saw how sadistic he was with everybody. I knew that would be turned on me. I also thought that my, my kids were safer with me in the relationship because then if I left the relationship, he'd be so antagonistic that he'd really be, be doing things with them that I would have no say over whatsoever. But sometimes the choice to stay seems like the safer choice. It was for us. Um, every time he escalated, you know, about me even, you know, mentioning maybe things weren't working out, you know, or, you know, maybe we should go or anything. He would lose it uncontrollably. Like, I mean. It would get worse when, you, when he was thinking that you were oh, going to leave. Yeah. It is the scariest time and the most dangerous time when you leave. You know, get in touch with your domestic abuse agency as early on as you can, and they'll help you safety plan because it's dangerous. When he almost killed me is when I was trying to leave him and I was not relenting. So you need some safety planning. You need to be really careful around it. And one thing I want to add is that um, not just uh, judicial system need to be changed, especially Maine, church, uh, I want to pastor for help. They weren't help at all. More of prayer going to solve everything. Mary Lou, did that happen with you? Well, I just remember when we, before we married, we went to a, a priest. He wanted me to understand that church emphatically believes that the husband, your husband should always come first in the marriage. You should be obedient to uh, your husband. And I thought I could fix it with prayers and then with getting the right meal. And you know what? I, I also learned that all the prayers aren't going to go anywhere unless you get up there and stand up and get to the door and turn the knob and walk out. And so, and when you get on the other side, everyone, it's much better. It's great. Well, look at us. I mean, who, who of us is right. we still in that relationship, right? Yeah, yeah, I'm 80 years old and I'm having a great time. And even one of the things I did after I got divorced is, you know, I'm Italian. And so he had nothing but, you know, that they were, they were dumb and stupid and, and everything about Italians. And my mom was born in Sicily. I saved my money and I, did a, I went on a tour of um, Sicily and I got myself from Portland, Maine to Palermo. And, I, and friends wanted to come with me, and I just wanted to see if I could do it myself. And I didn't go traveling like Patricia does all that independent. But I got on a tour, and I also decided if there was no one on there that I connected with, I was still going to enjoy myself. Well, it turned out it was a wonderful group of people, and these two women, you know, let me go with them where they, where they invited me. But, you know, just having that opportunity to do that and that I got home safe and sound was a way of knowing that I could make it. Could some people talk to, after we've been in these abusive relationships, like maybe being afraid of going back into a relationship? Christine, can we ask you, what is your thoughts about dating now? I'm, I'm really happy just focusing on myself and my life and my children. I'm more available to myself now at 56 than I've ever been in my life. And I, I love that feeling. So it's like you were ruled by your mother's philosophy, it seems like, for a really long time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Thinking, you know, kind of what Mary Lou was saying that it's, you know, it's the more, more important that the man in your life is comfortable and happy and that that's your, my lot in life is to manage and take care of him. I was with someone who said he was going to kill me and my daughter, our daughter. And, um, you know, was physically abusive with the animals in the house and, and really scary guy, just again, psychologically scaring me to death. I wanted to try to get his parental rights taken away, and I was told that that would never happen. And luckily, I did find a good lawyer, a woman lawyer, who had his parental rights taken away after two years and all the money I had. 
But yeah, it was not set up to support me at all. I had to fight, fight, fight every step of the way. With the child support, like when we lived in the shelter, it used to go to, you know, next step, and then they would give it to me. So there was like that middleman. And then once we got out of the shelter, he's like, I need to bring it to you or I'm not giving it to you. He's just kind of reinserted. I feel like every now and then I have to like almost go back to court or do something to kind of like push him back and at a safe distance again. With the child support, you can contact the DHHS. They can collect it from him and then send it to Great. you. Great. So, advice. You, know, you can set it up. Thank That's you, Leanne. Did you know about that, Megan? No, no, I didn't. Fabulous. I'm glad we got a lawyer in our group. Meeting women that are like teaching you to lift each other up instead of putting each other down. It's like, it's just, it's having that kind of a support system, you know, that really makes a difference. I never reached out to an organization because I didn't want to ruin our good name or whatever. But then my daughter-in-law, Sarah, is a social worker. Something comes across her desk that says they're doing a survey at Family Crisis on domestic violence. And if I went, I get a $25 um, gift card to to Hannaford. So that's how I got introduced. But it was so amazing because that's where I got myself in the door. And as they were doing the survey, um, they said, can we pull this aside and, and ask you these 10 questions? of how, how much danger you were in. And I said, okay. And so they asked me the 10 questions and I scored, I got a perfect score, 10 out of 10. And so I was mm-hmm. really in serious danger and, and didn't know it. You had asked about financial abuse before and I had forgotten that my daughter's birth father had stolen my credit cards and my, my social security cards. He opened up credit cards in his and my name. And 20 years later, I was still trying to get my name off of those cards. So when I was saying before that the system is not designed to help us, you know, hopefully now that that bill has passed into law, that won't be the case. But I, I had all this evidence of his abuse and the restraining orders and the fact that I didn't have any use of these credit cards and I still could not get my name off of them or it or them off my credit record. Maybe about three or four years into our marriage, my husband told me about when he was a little boy and he lived up in Ionia, Michigan. The farm next to theirs had horses. And he said, I would get my BB gun. And when the horses would come to the fence, I would wait. And when they would start to urinate or to pee, their penis would come out. And he goes, I would like to shoot their penis with a BB gun. And I said, why did you do that? And he said, well, I just, I just wanted to know what it felt like. I didn't understand pain. And I thought that would help me understand. How about doing it to himself? You said you were to someone else. I remember I said, I really wish you would have told me that before I married you. And that was really a turning point for me, was that little story about abuse of animals. We had our little dog that we loved. The kids really loved the dog. And he would put the dog in the back in the mudroom close the door and the dog would be crying all night long and we were not allowed to open the door. And that's one thing, Mary Lou, that you were saying, like, if I told that story anywhere else, people would say, they'd accuse me of cruelty. Why didn't you let the dog in the house? I could not let the dog in the house. And my kids, they'd be really upset. They'd be hearing the dog cry. And one time, I think one of the kids did let the dog out of the house and I got 
upset with my child and I said, why did you do that? Because I knew what it was going to cause, you know? And then another time he told me that he disciplined, the way he disciplined his horse was he punched the horse in the face. I had exactly that same experience. He would tie my dog to really close to one of the kitchen cabinets and block him off in the kitchen. But he had like, you know, six inches of leash to, to so he was peed all over the floor in the kitchen and everything, crying all night long. And my ex just said, you can't, you're not getting him. He's fine. And I was terrified to move. Yeah, definitely animal abuse. You just live in this like world and you are a prisoner, you know, and it just feels awful. It just, there, it feels like there's no hope when you're in it. He would always threaten to leave me. And Mary Lou, you alluded to that. He, would, he was telling you that he was going to leave you. The weird thing is that even for all the torment um, that he was causing me, I, I was more afraid. I was really afraid that he was going to leave me because I was so dependent on him. And I felt like my, my, he was my whole world. Like, what am I going to do without him? It is, it's a weird thing, isn't it? We're jailed, but yet... And Mary Lou, I think you said that, like, we had the key. It's like the door was not locked, like, in the jail. If we, you know, if we got word to authorities and, you know, domestic abuse agency and police, we could have gotten out, but it did feel like we were jailed. It felt like we were locked in. It felt like there was no way out. Mm -hmm. He said to me, you can never leave me because you have a lousy retirement, no health insurance, and no family. No family? You didn't have any family? Well, my brother and my mother had, the father had died. So, you know, I, I was, I was all involved with his family. So now I still have a lousy retirement. I pay for my health insurance and I have a wonderful family. I, <laughs> and even with my kids and my grandkids. And, you know, I think something that has been brought up here that, that, you know, I hear you talking about that your um, spouse is being abusive to um, animals. But the, the, the sadness that I have, and I'll probably start, really start bawling, is that I didn't protect my children. Just the mentality of not having to know that I needed to, to take care of my kids better than I did. It's not easy to live with, but I live with it now. And, and I have to have compassion and um, understanding and empathy for myself. But I think there's, there's probably women out there that are, are living what I lived with. And, and please take care of yourself and take care of your children and get out of it. Well, Mary Lou, I, I, I call you sometimes when I'm feeling that way because I feel guilty sometimes myself because I kept my kids in this. I mean, I stayed, you know, for 29 years and I know I can talk to you yeah. because I know you'll understand. Let's put that out to everybody. You think you're protecting the kids, but are you really? Some women will say, well, he's abusive to me or he's not good to me, but he's a great father. And that person who is not good to you cannot be a great father. And I, I was tearing up as Mary Lou was talking because I feel the same way. I really feel like I let my children down. I think I convinced myself that I kept them safe. We're all dealing with some of the, uh, the fallout from my, my past relationships, one, one in particular. I just kept thinking if I apologized and mediated and managed and did sort of this kabuki dance of, of maintenance around the relationship that it was okay. But I, I see now as my children get older that it, it was not okay. It was never okay. You know, kids, kids see it, kids know it. There is a much better life for you and your kids on the other side. Our house looked like the happiest house. I loved to entertain. We had lots of people there and cook and we loved it because it was, you know, you could relax for a minute. But, so the kids had to put up with that sh and, and live that charade 
too, that, you know, your father was a college mm -hmm. professor and we were the, the perfect Catholic family. And uh, it wasn't that way at all. Do you mean that you could relax because when there were people around that he would be on better behavior? Oh yeah, it was, he was oh, just kind and generous and thoughtful and everything. And bang, that the people would leave and that was all over it. And, you know, he'd be calling mm -hmm. it, why you did that? How come you did that? Even though I'm in a new relationship, when oh, I- Oh, you are? You're, wait, oh yes, you are, you're married. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but then uh, it, it wasn't easy because time to time I'm doubting is it is it the right choice that I made is it the is he gonna turn into another him again how long have you been together for this is heading to six years you still worry about that yeah because still time to time when he says something maybe he said it innocently but I I might be over analyzing I feel like it is he going to turn into another one? Well, it's good to be vigilant, that's for sure. Yeah, so it's hard to build that trust. So I don't think it's a good thing, but in the way I said, I need to protect myself. Of course. I don't want to go through that again. I don't think it's more important to protect yourself than to trust. But Megan, do you want to talk about any relationships you had after your that abusive relationship? I tried dating one guy for a short period of time, like over a year, and um, I thought he was really nice, but there was just some red flags going up, and I felt like because I'd been through the abuse, I, I noticed him more, but then I was like, am I being too sensitive? Am I like overly analyzing? I want to be alone. <laughs> I just, I want to be alone until, I don't know if it's something, I know like people who abuse pick up on things like not victims but like what people go through if you've been through abuse it's like almost like they can spot you i met this guy and he came on like well like a dream i said to him you're everything that my husband was not and nothing like he was and then i realized later oh my god he's just like my husband <laughs> my husband did never pretend to be sensitive even though, even though he's known for a very sensitive song and this guy was all about like woman empowerment and exploring the feminine side of himself. And then I started to see some red flags and then I got in touch with his exes and they confirmed. But the thing, Megan, that, that you were saying is I was very vulnerable. Like I, I was very fragile because I had just come out of this 29 year abusive relationship and I found out that his ex had been in the same situation as me when he had entered into a relationship with her. They become what you need or what they, they see that you need. And that's how they pull you in. And I would love to go to Janine because Janine has figured it out. She found this great guy. And, and mm -hmm. what was the process of that? I didn't date for many, many years after the divorce because he was in my head too. And I had been gaslit and lied to. And for a long time, I did believe I was stupid, fat, and ugly. So I just changed the, the vision of the man that I wanted in my head. I didn't want a man who was going to protect me anymore. I didn't want a man who uh, was going to be rich and had a fancy car and a great job <laughs> and would go traveling with me. And this time around, I wanted someone um, who was caring. This time I wanted somebody who wanted to dance with me. That's one thing that I didn't do the whole time I was married. And I didn't dance for 25 years. And I wanted somebody who would snuggle with me on the couch and watch a documentary because I love documentaries. Nice. And I, I met him online. I was very careful. You know, I would 
run background checks and things. Um, <laughs> if there's any bit of advice that I could give other women is to have a good picture in your head of who would be a good person for you. And then just start to vision that and manifest it and believe that you're worth it. Thank you. What you would say to a woman who's still in it, if there's one piece of advice you could give her, and Meg will go down the row if it's okay. Megan, do you have something that you would want to say? Yeah, I would just want the woman to know to be patient with herself and to reach out. And sometimes it takes a village, you know, and you need support. And this is one of those times and just not, be, not to be afraid about communicating and opening up. And also just not to beat yourself up. You know, it takes on average five to six times of leaving before women leave. And, and sometimes you're ready and sometimes you're not. Thank you. I'm Mary Lou. I think don't wait till you've been married for 43 years to finally decide it's not working. If you need help to go out there and get it, it's never too late to leave. And there's someone there to help you. And Janine, could you tell me about what advice you would give to women who are still in it? I liken it to being a vehicle, a woman who wants to get out of a relationship. And if she's thinking about getting out but not making progress, she's very likely stuck in neutral. Her car, herself, she's in neutral. And you need to get from neutral into drive. And sometimes all it is is a baby step that will do that. But Pat, one thing you referenced earlier, and this is so true, there's that wonderful meme that you see on Facebook now. It shows the two red shoes of Dorothy on the yellow brick road. And the words of the meme are from Glenda, the good witch of the North. And she says, my dear, you had the power all along. Right. <laughs> so these women do have the power to leave, but they're right. stuck in neutral. Right. And think of that meme and yep. believe that you have the power to yes. that because you yes. do. You do. And with the help of domestic abuse agency, you know, you have the power. You absolutely do. Thank you, Janine. And Leanne, some advice that you would give? If something happened, make sure to report to police. And may put that in the record. Yeah, good point. Very good Very point. Very good point. <laughs> Very good point. Thank you, Leanne. And Christine? Well, I, I can tell you from my personal experience that if you are telling yourself that you're staying because of your children, that is the worst possible reason to stay because my children have let me know that they respect me so much more for becoming the strong person that I am and leaving that relationship. And your, your children will love you for that, to, to, to come into your power and not, not tolerate that anymore. And, and it, is, it is harmful for your children for you to stay, no matter what you're telling yourself about that. Thank you, Christine. For everyone out there who wants to know after hearing about domestic abuse, how insidious, how pervasive, how can they help? I think you can help by um, breaking down the stigma and you can do that through opening up dialogue with each other and, you know, talking and just being real, you know, and being real. Yeah. Get real. I love that. I was never real with any of my friends and I don't know if they were really real with me. And I have had so many real conversations since I left. I only want to have real conversations. Like I don't have patience. I really don't. I, I don't care to talk to people about chit chat stuff. Like I just want to get real. Janine, can you tell me advice for the community, how the community can help? They can believe the women. Mm. That's exactly right. Yes. Listen and believe. 
Thank you. I know I, when I came back from California, I mean, I was gone for a year, so I could recover away from everything. Some friends just didn't want anything to do with me because I had bad mouth Charlie. Once I came back, to, I built a whole of friends that we trust and love each other. More honest. Honesty. Honesty. Mm -hmm. yeah. right. And Leanne, how would you say that the community can help? I think that when you said it, uh, just the right thing I was about to say, yes, listen and believe. And Christine? Ask your neighbor or your friend if you think they're in an abusive relationship, what's going on? If anything I can help you with? I, I think so many people think because they don't maybe have the solution that they don't want to start that conversation, but sometimes just talking about it is what they need. Thank you. And even if the person is not ready to tell you then, if they ever feel like they need to get out, they can remember to reach out to you. When I think about the community, you know, I, I wrote numerous editorials in the paper and then uh, they had that Bill Nimitz article. And so this woman that had been following me, she'd gone up to Augusta and saw the exhibit, read about me and she said, that woman's telling my story. And so she finally found a friend on Facebook and searched me out. So now we're communicating, but just by being out, being out front and being an example, people can search you out too and know that you'll listen to them. Mary Lou, can you read your poem to us? When I had been married for 43 years, I wrote a poem in my journal about what I was feeling. I used the word it to describe what my husband was doing to me. I didn't know it was domestic violence. Two months after I wrote this poem, I left my husband. It. It sits in my stomach. It aches in my heart. It encompasses my being. It chokes at my soul. It kills my spirit. It eats at my thoughts. It puts a cloud all around me. It swallows my self-esteem. It's ugly. It is cold. It is angry. It is empty. It's controlling. It is powerful. It is painful. It is sad. That's beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Mary Lou. Well, thank all of us. I love you. <laughs> love you. Love, love you. you thank you so much. Let's do this again sometime. <laughs> Definitely. You have been listening to Let's Talk About It, a conversation with survivors of intimate partner abuse, hosted by me, Patricia McLean, founder and president of the Maine based nonprofit organization Finding Our Voices. Huge downtown window banners are touring the state, featuring the five guests on this broadcast and 20 other Maine survivors, plus the local domestic abuse hotline phone number. If you want to bring the banners to your downtown, if you have a comment or question for me or my guests, if you want to make a donation to our nonprofit and help us break the silence of domestic abuse in Maine, contact me through our website, findingourvoices.net. And if what we are talking about sounds familiar... If you have an intimate partner who makes you afraid and controls what you say and do, or if you have a friend or family member you suspect is going through this and want to know what you can do to keep them safe, call your domestic abuse hotline. 
The victim advocates who take the calls believe you and they understand it. In Maine, that number is 1-866-834-4357. The national hotline number is 800-799-7233. The Finding Our Voices Sisterhood of Survivors is at findingourvoices.net. And remember, love should feel good. I always thought that you were strong, but I was wrong. That's me. And I don't need your strength. I've got my own. You're a bully. You're just a bully.